0: Good morning, everyone. We're going to be in John chapter 5 today. Uh, actually, it was really wonderful. Sean almost intuitively gave a definition that I want to expand on uh, this morning, which is uh, just draw out a little distinction uh, as we are in a season in the Christian calendar known as Easter Tide, which is uh, the 50 days after Easter, and in this time what we're really trying to do is uh, understand the joy that comes from uh, this wonderful good news that Jesus has risen and is now uh, made it possible for us to know his joy and his power. And so uh, to understand what joy is, we need to understand uh, a distinction that I think our culture doesn't make very well, which is what's the distinction between joy and fun? right? And fun could be uh, having a good cup of coffee with a good friend. Uh, Fun could be going to the movies or uh, playing a game that we enjoy. All good stuff. But the thing about fun is that it needs to be repeated, right? And we can't really repeat it in the same way to make ourselves have the same kind of fun that we had. And so there's this way in which happiness and fun isn't as sustainable as Christian joy. And so maybe a, a A story I could bring to you uh, about joy from my life today is that uh, my great Aunt Nene is here with us uh, and uh, she's here because my cousin got married in in the area and so you could think uh, she just told me a story that uh, even though uh, she's getting a little bit up there in age (laughs) that uh, yesterday as my uh, cousin was getting married that Everybody in the family got her out on the dance floor, and she's out there dancing with, with everybody. And she said she's paying for it today or last <laughs> night. But um, you know, what, what makes us think that happiness isn't the right word for a moment like that? Uh, it's because it's accumulation of a lot of hard work. You know, being a great aunt, um, taking care of a lot of kids, and, and then watching those kids have kids taking care of them, um, and to uh, love and care through all of uh, life's journey with all of them, and then to come to a moment uh, on the dance floor where all that's left is to just celebrate and, and just uh, enjoy. Uh, that's, that's a picture of joy, right? When we have kids, we don't say, oh, that was so fun. <laughs> um, but we do say, wow, the experience of that was joy, because joy changes our life. It is an expression that something different is happening now for us, and a good definition might look something like integrity, that we know exactly who we are and what we were made to do And now we understand better when we become a parent, we go, okay, now I understand. One of the reasons why I was on earth was to be a parent. And there's so many ways maybe you could be drawn into an idea of what joy is, as integrity, goodness, rightness, that we now realize is how we're supposed to live and be in the world. And it's about our existence, about our whole existence, that even though... There's moments where we're unhappy or challenged by life that we realize that in the big picture that we exist um, and, and for a purpose, and that purpose gives us joy. And so I want to use that definition this morning to look at John chapter 5 and see what we can draw out as we meditate on joy. Before we do, uh, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray that uh, you would continue to be with us as we look at Uh, this story from your life, and uh, I pray that uh, you would teach us what we are supposed to know as we seek to follow you, as we seek to understand uh, who you are and what uh, that means for our lives, uh, to be faithful to your call, to walk in love in the way that you have defined it and showed us as possible. And, Lord, ultimately to connect to you so that we can know your joy um, and what uh, all of life has for us. And we pray that you would bless everyone here uh, as we learn together. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. All right. John chapter 5. It will be on the screens as well as if you want to follow along. Some time later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there in Jerusalem near the sheep gate, a pool. Now there is a, in Jerusalem near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie: the blind, the lame and the paralyzed. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. One of the questions that I want us uh, to look at this morning is what was it that animated Jesus? What was in Jesus' heart as he healed this man at the pool of Bethesda? You know, when we think about miracles, if I asked the everyday person on the street uh, why we would talk about miracles at the church, I wonder if they would answer a question like why did Jesus do something like this by saying, well, it was probably because he wanted to demonstrate he was powerful, demonstrate that he had a godlike ability. Or maybe cynically we might even answer and say, well, it was because he needed followers, he needed sweat equity, he needed people to come along and, and do what he wanted them to do. But it's interesting because in the story we see no details close to that, right? As he heals this man as he finds this man who has been by this pool for 38 years hoping that he would get healed, uh, he doesn't even tell him his name. Uh, He's not looking for any kind of credit as he uh, encounters this man. And the details of the story have us asking deeper questions about what was Jesus exactly up to and I believe that if we're willing to take a look at the way in which Jesus uh, acts in this story and the pattern of the way that Jesus acts many times as he uh, encounters people that we learn about in the gospel stories that there's much for us to learn about what it means to be doing the work that Jesus would have us and desire for us to do. That is the reason why I have entitled this sermon, Joy Assignments. You see, Jesus has this habit, as in this story we discover. He enters Jerusalem, and there he finds a pool... At this pool was known that both Jews and Gentiles together would go to seek healing. This was before any formal hospital existed in the world, and so there was a way by which people uh, would go and, and, and probably have superficial healing for their skin because this was a freshwater mineral pool that people would go and, and go in and they would come out and feel like, they had some healing that took place. And then there were rumors going around that if you were able to get to the middle of the pool, that when the natural spring would bubble up and the waters were stirred, that that was the real, true place of healing. But we would discover in the story with this man is that he was in despair. That, as you can imagine, the story that he began to tell himself after 38 years of lying at the pool, watching other people go to the middle and get their healing and not able to receive the healing that he needed, that he had developed a narrative, that he had developed an identity. And he had even thought about what the options were for how he might get healed, but all of that is disrupted. And he's surprised to discover that's a a totally new answer to the cry of his heart. And so we see what he's been telling himself. I've been left out. I'm too slow. Everybody else seems to be able to get to the middle of the pool, but every time, That I try and get to the middle of the pool, somebody beats me there. There's no one to help me, no one to care for me. Enjoy assignments so frequently when we see when Jesus is on them look like Him going to the margins, they look like Him going to the people that have been left out or left behind. And so he asks the question to this man, he says, do you want to get well? It's an important question and it's one that I think if we just read the story and we kind of keep moving that we would go, oh, of course. Of course this man wants to get well. That's why he's been laying at the pool. That's been the desire of his heart. But when we think about that question, Do you want to get well? It's an important question because what it does is change the way that we have to think about what our story is in the world, what our purpose and identity are in the world. And as we struggle, one of the things that we discover is that we begin to tell ourselves stories. Stories about why things are the way that they are, why the world is the way that it is, why we are the way that we are. And we can see a really pointed, acute example of this in this man who's just saying, This is the reason why I'm here. Because I keep getting shortchanged, that each day is just like the one before it, another one worthy of despair. Another one where I'm a victim. A difficult, difficult story that this man is telling himself. But as we use the definition that we just had about joy, we can think about Jesus in this moment. What's motivating him to ask the question is that he is there as a person of joy. A representative of heaven. And he's surprising this man that he's willing, he's he's willing to be the one. He's willing to be the one who first pays attention. He's willing to be the one who goes and asks the essential question without any dialogue. And he's willing to be the one if this man is willing to give him the healing that he's looking for. And it doesn't have to do with getting to the center of the pool. In this story, we see that Jesus just says, get up, take your mat, and go. And that's exactly what happens. It's really interesting to see the layers of the story, but before we move on to some of the other dimensions of the story and how it's impacted Christian history and world history, I first just want to stop for a moment and ask, who are your joy assignments? Who are the people in your life that may be in despair? Where do you find them? And I believe that all of us, when we connect to Jesus, are called then to be the people of joy in the midst of despair. And that so frequently doesn't look like the halls of power or gaining some kind of uh, secondary gain by taking care of people. But it looks more like Jesus here who just says, you want to know what heaven is like? do you want to get well? It so frequently looks like going to find those people that have been left out and say, I know who I am, and I know what my Jesus is about, and I know where he's headed, and I just want to be going in the same direction, and that's what brought me to this place. And so who are those people in your life? Uh, One example of this I've seen uh, is from my wife, Katie. Uh, we, she developed a really good friend uh, back when we were in school, and uh, that friend actually happened to move out into our area, as well, out here, even though we were in Pasadena at the time. And over those years, we've seen her life um, experience a number of challenges. Uh, her first son was born with disabilities. Wonderful, wonderful kid. But as any parent knows, that's just extra challenge. Um, and so Katie is always checking in with her, seeing how she's doing, asking her if she's OK. And then um, a few years after that, then she got the news that uh, the, the baby that was in her belly that she was going to have had a, a rare heart defect. And so she had a really difficult choice of knowing exactly what to do as the, the baby uh, should she have the baby, and if she decided to do it. And then uh, the baby lasted for about a year, lived for about a year, and then passed away. And so every year on the anniversary of that death, uh, Katie checks in with her, buys her a meal, because as the years go on, there's a way by which, you know, what seems so acute at the moment and everybody's around you to support you over the years, that grief's still there for her and her friend, but maybe not so many people are there to check in. That's a joy assignment. Doesn't look like, you know, easy answers or perfection. It just looks like, an individual person that you know that is hurting, that maybe everybody else has kind of forgot about their hurt because we all have our hurts, but you just checking in and saying, hey, how are you doing? This looks like everyday ordinary stuff with a little more intention, the intention of Jesus. So who's that person for you? And then uh, we can unpack a little bit here because I think it's important to talk about uh, how how this story works in the way that John is trying to tell the good news of the gospel. He shows us that actually there are seven signs in the gospel. There are seven uh, stories that are pointing to some bigger significance. You know, signs are there not to be the end-all, be-all, but signs are there to point us to something greater. And we see that in this story. Uh, there are seven of them. The first is when he changes water into wine. The second is when he heals the royal official's son. The third is when he heals the paralytic, the story we have this morning. The fourth is the feeding of the 5,000. The fifth is walking on water. The sixth is healing a man born blind. And the seventh is when He raises Lazarus from the dead. And these are all signs in the gospel. And these signs are pointing to a significance we see in the tension that Jesus has with the Pharisees after he does this miracle. Because the only reason actually the purpose of who Jesus is and his bigger mission and why this becomes a sign is because he's in trouble. Because he brought joy, he's on joy assignment, it actually got him in all kinds of trouble that if he wouldn't have healed this man, if he wouldn't have shown this man love and compassion, that he wouldn't have had to endure. And so joy doesn't look like, oh, well, keeping everybody happy all the time so much as it is caring for those who need it most, and sometimes that gets you into a little bit of trouble. And so Jesus is in this uh, situation where he's unknown at first, but the Pharisees see this man who's just picked up his mat and has moved it to somewhere else. And in this culture, that meant moving, like moving your home. This was this man's home. And so he had picked it up on the Sabbath, and he was moving it to somewhere else because he was no longer sick. He was well, and so he needed to be somewhere else. And while he's doing that, the Pharisees point it out and say, oh, he's breaking the law. And they question him about why he's breaking the law. And he says, because the man who healed me told me to do it. And then it's interesting, right, they have this encounter again in the story. And then Jesus talks to this man again, and, and he reveals a deeper truth. He teaches him that he's not just there to heal his body, but also that he cares about his eternal soul. And he says that you shouldn't keep sinning, that, that you should uh, hear the gospel, that you should come to know me. He, he discovers in this Story uh, that his sin uh, is present and that he can also come to know Jesus. And in the revealing of Jesus, we see this glimpse, this sign that Jesus about his business of declaring eternal life is possible for all. You know, that John 3.16, that is the mission statement of this gospel. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but inherit eternal life. And if you continue on in this dialogue, in this story, you see Jesus is having this conversation with the Pharisees, and he's trying to teach them about eternal life. And so there's this deeper dimension that's a signpost that Jesus heals this man to show that there's something greater, there's something more that the people of God are on and are about. This is good news for us as well, as we think about the ways in which Christians respond to stories like this. In the early church gives us great examples of their response. You now, of course, one of the teachings that the early church would bring forward in light of a story like this is that they would pray for those who are sick, pray for their healing. We do that at this church, that anybody who is sick and in need of prayer, there is so many people at this church that are dedicated to being in prayer for the people that have fallen ill and care for the people that have fallen ill in this church. And we lay hands and we pray for healing. And then we also discover that there's a huge historical meaning out of a story like this and others in the gospel And that is, like I mentioned, that there were no even hospitals in Jesus' time. But because people discovered that what Jesus cared about was people that were sick, that hospitals were created. And the followers of Jesus set their gifting and their time and their intelligence to create hospitals and organize places of compassion things that we benefit from today that we don't even realize where they came from, that brings so much goodness into our lives without us even really having to participate unless we're doctors or nurses. And I can say that one of my friends that I do life with is an ER doctor and every year we visit the big questions of our life and of course our calling and vocation comes into play and he always has the best stories. Uh, Because if you're an ER doctor, you encounter some of the craziest things that life could ever bring. And you do it each and every day. And he tells us the great struggles that he experiences on all sides as he makes incredibly difficult decisions to care for people in desperate situations. But every year, he finishes his conversation by saying, but I still believe that I am in the place that God wants me to be. Because we keep trying to tell him, you should just become one of those family doctors. You know, your life's so much easier over there. And he keeps saying, no, this is where God made me to be. This is the place I know I'm supposed to be. That is the source of joy, as he is a person of healing each and every day for them. And so we can ask again, do you want to get well? And just let that question hang in the air. We can say, okay, what are the ways in which Jesus could ask me this question? Do you want to get well? And how my, my heart responds to those questions, understanding that there's all kinds of coping mechanisms all kinds of things that can get in the way of us actually wanting to change the way we think and the way we live and what it would take to be well and to actually live into a new story that God would want to bring out in us. So we see on the individual level joy assignments. We see the cumulative effect of Christians together working in joy to address the world's greatest needs and issues. And then finally, I just want to get to this last part of the story where Jesus is talking about what is really going on for him when he's dealing with uh, the Pharisees and their questioning of him. And we see it in verse 17. Uh, John even gives us his purpose. He says, In his defense, Jesus said to them, My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Now, when we read that, we just say, okay, Jesus is about his Father's work, but if we realize that breaking the Sabbath was treason, then we see here that Jesus' words have really strong significance. This is a conflict. Jesus is saying, I'm doing this work because this is what God is doing. God is working on the Sabbath, and I'm doing what God has shown for me to do. And there's a revealing in all of this that has to do with that significant thing that all of this is pointing to. See, Jesus is saying, I'm now on Easter time. He's pointing to uh, this future time. This time, the the clock that heaven is on. He's in a new time zone. He's saying things are changing. That there's a new way that we're supposed to be in the world. And let me show you some signs so that I can get you ready for this time when it will be seen in its fullness. The theologian uh, Jürgen Moltmann has this great little uh, teaching on the difference between anxiety and hope. He says that anxiety is anticipated terror, meaning that if we live in an age of anxiety, which many have said is the age we live in, then there's a way by which what that means is that we're projecting terror, that what is in our future is not good. These are signs and symbols of despair. Something similar to the narrative that this man must have had. But Moltmann says that hope is the exact opposite. That hope is anticipated joy. You see, if we walk into a, a situation that seems desperate or difficult, but we know who we are and we know we're connected to Jesus then we're anticipating something else. We're not anticipating that this story would end in terror. We're anticipating that this story would end in joy. That all of the hard work, all of the ways we apply ourselves, all of the sacrifice that we give, all the prayer for the ones that we love, that the end product of that would be a way to have Joy. I see this so frequently at memorials, as I talk to spouses who have cared for their loved one until they've passed away. Now, nobody ever has told me that that was a source of happiness for them. But those who have done it well, those who have given themselves to love and sacrifice and care for the one they love, At the end, they still know joy. And they can praise and thank God for that joy. These are the things that we give ourselves to here as we seek to follow Jesus. So let me ask you one last time, who is your joy assignment? And let me pray for you that uh, you would know how to bring joy into the places of despair so that you can know what Jesus is all about and how you can be with him wherever you are. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, give us joy assignments. Um, give us ways by which we can extend your compassion, Lord. And out of that, would it produce hope in us? Hope, the hope of heaven that we can trust And know that even though things get dark and death leads us to despair, that we are a people of resurrection. And we are a people that seek to bring signs of you, the living God, wherever we may be. And so help us uh, to do this work. Encourage us. Remind us when we are uh, we were lost and have forgotten. And, Lord, just, just um, be with us. Uh, give us your presence. Um, and we thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word and the ways in which you have reminded us of this truth. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.